started a series last week. It's going to go uh, for the next couple of weeks, a couple of months, about eight weeks. Uh, learning from the inspiration of the, the persecuted church, dangerous faith. And slightly strangely, we're going to uh, read from the end of Acts. It's going to be based from uh, Acts, which is uh, the first book after the four Gospels. So chapter 28, verse, 17, uh, verse 11 and following. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in uh, the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regum. The next day, the south wind came up, and the following day, we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, although I have done nothing against our people and against the customs of, of, of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that, this, that people everywhere are talking about this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he had staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Jesus, thank you for, for the life of Paul. Thank you that you rescued him multiple times, but principally when he was so set against you, 
that you didn't stand in judgment and end his life, but changed his life. Thank you for his writings, for his passion, that he had you at the center of his life. And we live in the legacy of what he began. As we heard in the story of, of those, that vision for this trip to India, the ripples still working their way out from what your faithful servant began. Inspire us again this, eve, this morning. Amen. Amen. In many ways, beginning a series with the end is a little bit of a strange way to start. The book of Acts, chapter 28, some people think, what's happened? It starts off with Jesus in Jerusalem. It starts off with resurrection. It starts off with the appearance of Jesus to the, to the disciples, the apostles, and said, I'm going to clothe you with power from on high. And they waited in Jerusalem. Jesus ascended to heaven. They waited, they waited. And one morning, as they were praying and worshiping the Holy Spirit, as Jesus had promised, came upon them. They were filled with the Spirit. And boldness came and courage, and they spilled about out onto the street and started proclaiming, praising God in, in words that all sorts of people heard. And from there, they, they began to have amazing fruitfulness in Jerusalem. And then there's a little bit of opposition comes, and the, the rulers in, in Jerusalem, the Jewish leaders say, stop it. How can we stop it, they say. And they heal a man. And persecution begins. That's not only the theme of the advance of the kingdom of God from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, but also the narrative of increasing opposition about Jesus, about his people. And in many ways, it's, it's a bit of an anticlimax. You kind of think it starts dramatically, ends up slightly on a low key. But Acts is wonderful to remind us of many things. Uh, for one thing, it reminds us that in what Jesus began and taught and did in the Gospels doesn't stop. Doesn't stop. Jesus ascends chapter 1 and pours out his spirit, chapter 2. And then the other 26 or so chapters are all about what happens through his people, Jesus' people, sisters and brothers like you and me, filled with the Spirit, who love Jesus' hands, who take Jesus at his word and serve him wherever they find, wherever they're sent, wherever they're scattered. It's not, it is about Jesus. Jesus is still working through his people, but it's his people at large. It's amazing what is accomplished through Jesus' people. When we reel about the story in, in Acts, there's martyrdom. First martyr, and there have been millions since. This persecution begins, and we're learning in this series lessons that the persecuted church might teach us to be encouraged and give, give boldness and insight from their understanding, but also to recognize, as uh, we saw in the opening video last week, that much of the New Testament and much of the Bible is written by people who are persecuted to people who are persecuted. And then without recognizing that, we may not quite grasp what it means to be in the place of suffering or to interpret the Bible in those ways. It's about healing. It's about good news. It's about God's plan and purpose for all peoples, Gentiles. It's about journeys. journeys. 
And sometimes it's about violence. I don't know if you've noticed, it starts in Jerusalem and ends in Rome. Even in that, those few verses from uh, verse 11 of chapter 28 through, we get a little bit of a travel log. They've been shipwrecked in Malta, they're, they're moving up to Italy, they're passing through, uh, they, they end up at, uh, uh, by the Forum in Appius and the three taverns, people gather and they journey to Rome. There's something about Acts that is very clearly rooted in place. It's not just about the spiritual realm, it's about the very practical, earthy places, wherever feet tread. And they've got geographical names. Rome being the center, the most uh, significant, the most powerful focal point of the whole Roman Empire, where every place in the known world at that time would look to or would wish they weren't governing. Acts charts the missionary journeys of Paul, three of them. And it reads again like a travel log. There's something about what God is doing that often, well, always involves his people, his spirit, in following Jesus, but is very much rooted in place. Where are you now? Where are we now? This is a theme all the way through Scripture. Remember, uh, in Act, um, Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. And Abram's in a place called Ur. It's not because they've forgotten where it was. Uh, it's called Ur. And it says, Abram, go to the place I'm sending you. And he goes with his family in Lot. And they travel across the Middle East and end up in where we now call Israel, Palestine. And says, I will bless you and make you a nation and I will give you a land. And he goes and follows and all the way through the scriptures, there's this particular place. Israel features very, very much in the, in the Old Testament as, as the place where God has said, I will reside in the tabernacle, in the temple. But it's not just that place. You see, always in the prophets, if you're reading through any of the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and uh, the, what get called the minor prophets, they're not minor, unimportant, they're just shorter. That's what minor means, bizarrely. But Amos and so forth. Often there's, they bring a word that is directed to either Egypt or to Edom or to the Philistines or to the Babylonians or the Assyrians that again and again that God's word, God's plans aren't just located in one particular place but actually global in vision. Where are you? Part of this series involves some videos that uh, a guy called Dr. Boyd, Ron Boyd-Williams, he works for Open Doors part-time. He does a lot of work overseas with the persecuted church, and these accompany this series. Here are some of his, of his reflections on this passage as we think of dangerous faith, what we can learn from the scriptures and the inspiration of the early church and the church at large. Thank you. There comes a point in every Christian's life where we get into situations wondering whether God's given up on us. Maybe it just feels like he's not using us as he should. You can't help this little voice bubbling up. You know, has God still got the same use for me? 
and it seems like we're drifting when we really want to be conquering. Well, maybe the Book of Acts can help us with this, especially its intriguing ending, that the key to joy might lie in looking just as much at where we are as at what we are doing. In the message translation, the last line is, and his door was always open. That's the final image of the Book of Acts. It's people coming in and out when Paul is under house arrest. Samuel Goldwyn once said uh, to his scriptwriters, start with an earthquake and build to a climax. And certainly Luke started right. You, know, you get Pentecost, tongues of fire coming down on the people, speaking languages they never knew and they're turned into lions, where they were mice before. And then, of course, the story builds after that. Uh, you get healings, you get confrontation with the, the Jewish authorities, then you get the persecution, spreading people out. Paul becomes converted, and uh, he begins to travel. And so it's building and building, and Paul even gets to the, the greatest intellectual forum in the world, the Areopagus in Athens. And then, suddenly, this story takes another twist. Paul goes back to Jerusalem, he gets arrested, and to escape a mob that would lynch him, he uses his Roman citizenship to say, I want to go to Caesar and have my case held in front of him. And so for the rest of the book, he's traveling to Rome as a prisoner. You would think, well, aren't we heading now for the climax? The world's most amazing missionary He's going to meet the world's most powerful man on behalf of the world's most powerful God. You couldn't think that one up even in Hollywood. What would Paul say to Caesar? What would Caesar say to Paul? Would there be a miracle? Would there be a martyrdom? What a showdown. But Luke doesn't take us there. Luke gets him to Rome and he stops the book with Paul under house arrest and people just going in and out. And you could hear the Samuel Goldwins of the world saying, where's my climax? What happened? What did Paul say? What did Caesar say? Did the trial even happen? This is the Bible's most dramatic book, but it doesn't seem to have that dramatic an ending. And we're left with a very important question. Why is this an ending to the book? I remember at seminary hearing a scholar tell us that actually Luke just ran out of space on the scroll, but surely there's more to it than that. Surely this is the way Luke meant it. Surely this is the way the Holy Spirit meant it. But it's still a very strange ending. Why is this the right ending to the book? And I think I, I got a little clue to it when I was traveling in China. I met this great leader there who uh, was an expert on the history of the Chinese church. And uh, everybody was going to China at that point and trying to find out why they had had such a huge revival. It's the largest scale revival in the history of the church. It grew from about less than a million before 49, and it's up to 85 million, probably more today. And this man said, ah, he said, this is the story of the revival. Let me tell you, it's not about personalities. Think places, not people, he said. And he said, I think the story is how God brought the gospel to four locations. They all begin with C. The court, the compound, the church, and the kitchen. And his English was rather rudimentary. And uh, yet, 
there's great theology there. First it comes to the court, he means the emperor. But when the emperor cooled, the faith stalled. But something was left to build on. Then it came to the compound. He means the missionary compound in the 19th century when all the Protestant missionaries came and they pushed deep into the interior and they had to build compounds for themselves. And they've made a few converts and the converts roughly stayed in the, in the compound. But it's very difficult to have a really Chinese church in a Western compound. Still, something was left to build on. Then the gospel comes to the church and the missionaries make enough converts they build some small rudimentary churches. Some of them are actually quite large and they're filled. But even so, uh, by the time Mao takes power 49, you couldn't say Christianity had grown that much or was that impressive. In fact, there was a famous novelist called Pearl Buck who said, Christianity has left no more impact on China than a finger drawn through water. Still, something was left to build on. And then finally, it comes to the kitchen. And what he means is that in the terrible time of the Cultural Revolution between 66 and 76, when the communists really unleashed a very severe persecution on the church, the Bibles were burned, pastors imprisoned, and churches were all closed, people had to go, the Christians that were left, had to go into the home, and they got together in the home. They whispered the hymns, they passed around fragments of scripture, it was very dangerous, but that's really where the faith became really Chinese and it embedded in the family for the first time in hundreds of years. And when it becomes part of the family, it becomes part of the fabric of Chinese society. And so he said that was the key to the revival. And so from that crucible of persecution, when the faith went into the home, out came this huge revival. So he said, think places, not people. And that's a great principle. And I thought, hmm, wonder if I should take that to the book of Acts. One of the key verses, obviously, of the book of Acts is always Acts 1.8, where Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will fall upon you and uh, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So there's a kind of geographic plot laid out even uh, in the first chapter. The book of Acts is all about how the Holy Spirit get the gospel out from a cultural backwater like Palestine and Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. I think we could see the whole book of Acts through four locations, Jerusalem, Samaria, Antioch, and Rome. And each city is like a concentric circle as the gospel spreads out Jerusalem at first the Jews really get the message. Samaria, the half-Jews, the Samaritans, also get the message. Antioch, everybody in the Gentile world is starting to get it too. And then finally Rome, where if it gets to Rome, it gets everywhere. There was a saying at the time that said all roads lead to and from Rome. It was the center of the world. Everybody's going to Rome and coming from Rome. When Paul gets to Rome, and sits in house arrest, the world is coming to him, all the Christians are coming to him, he's explaining the gospel, and out they go. That's it. That's the gospel going to the ends of the earth. If you look at the geography, it's mission accomplished. Don't need the courtroom scene. Don't need the big confrontation with Caesar if it ever happens. It's not important. It doesn't matter. 
because it's not about the personalities. It's about the places. And it's about what the Holy Spirit's doing. The Spirit's the hero of the book. This is what I, I, I love about the ending because there are times when I feel trapped. I'm not using my gifts as I should, or so I say to God. And I think, well, I'm sure Paul felt the same. Paul was stuck in a house, chained to a Roman soldier 24 seven. And this is a man who always wanted to be on the edges of the earth, spreading the gospel, couldn't do it. And yet, actually, that's the climax. That's the gospel going absolutely everywhere because of where he's sitting. Paul was really being the ultimate missionary in more ways than he knew. I haven't experienced a Pentecost. I haven't seen an ascension. I haven't seen a resurrection. But I know that I've sat on a sofa and I've talked to people and that person has gone out and done something with those words because I believe in faith that every time you share something in love from the scripture, it is eternal in its effects. So this is a great comfort. This is how it works. So here's the great encouragement from this amazing book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is always active to get the gospel out to the world through us in more ways than we will ever be aware. Because even if we're not able to do something, we can always be somewhere. Sometimes um, people talk about the if-then syndrome. I know it in my own life. If something were different, then I'd do something. I remember uh, in my own life thinking, well, uh, as, a, as a teenager, if I'd got some money, <laughs> then I could do this. And that was the same as a student. If I got some money, then I could. And I had all the time in the world in those long three-month holidays, but I had no money. But if then. And then you start the world of work, and then you think, well, if I had the holiday, I might have got a bit of money. The if-then syndrome. If I had got a husband or wife, then. Well, if I didn't have a mortgage, then. If I had a stable job, then. If I didn't have children, then. If I could sleep at night, then. Oh, if the children have left home, then. If I wasn't so tired, then. When I'm retired, I'll have all the time in the world, then. Do you see what I'm saying? We so often live in the land of imagination of make-believe, of a scenario of thinking that says, only when, then. But we live in the now of who you are, of the right now, of who God has called you to be and filled you with the Spirit and says, now, where are you? As Ron said it, and, and the house church in China reminds us, they just gathered in kitchens and shared the story of God and revival came. 
not through personality, not through great rallies and crusades and not great meetings and a great band, but sisters and brothers who love Jesus and could have said, well, if we weren't under persecution, then it would be easier, but they weren't. If we had a bigger church or younger people or a better band, then something might happen. But we're not there. We're here. You're here. As Karen read for us earlier in the service from the start of Ephesians, praise be to the God Almighty who has sent His Son and has given us His Spirit. We don't live in the imaginary worlds of the if-then syndrome. But now, I, I notice this every time uh, that we, we've started doing this thing called Connect, and it's not the only way that I experience this or know this, but when we uh, gather on Thursdays and we go out into, this, into our town and neighborhood and we, find, uh, we try and find ways to connect with people, to talk to, G, to, to them about anything really, but with the hope that we can connect a little bit about Jesus, I'm really knowing that it's here and now. And this person in front of me in this moment, of Lord, what are you doing? Lord, where are you at work? How can I pray for this person? What's going on in their life of listening to God? And, and I, I may think, I wish I was more experienced, then I'd be better at this. I wish Christopher was here because he's better at it than me. I wish someone else would have an insight or hear from, the God, from God because I'm not hearing so well today. I wish I wasn't so nervous. Only when I've grown in confidence. Do you see how much it figures? But I've learned through doing this that God works through me and through you, through us, now. When we say, Lord, be at work. May your kingdom come. Lord, let me have opportunity even just to smile, perhaps, when no one else is, to, to pray or to speak words of blessing, to not curse or to not speak negatively, to speak things that will build up, not knock down, to offer a simple act of generosity. Not if then, here and now. We're praying for revival, and it's part of our, our vision and culture as a church. And I expect it and long for it and pray for it, as do you. But it also says, we are here now. Where are you? Was the question posed. Where are you in life? And that's enough. It's now. It's here. That God has called us and he will bring his kingdom. He's promised it to build his church. He's promised it through us. If it's a difficult time or a good time. It's the time now. Should we pray? <laughs>